Welcome to the Thrive Vineyard Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Kevin Kiefer. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit thrivevineyard.com. Good to see you guys this morning. Um, yeah, if you're new here or haven't been here in a while, just want to give you a particular welcome. We love you. We're so honored to spend time with you. Um, I enjoyed our time of worship. It was good you know, to just open up the front and to just allow the Lord to minister to us. And we, we are a church that wants to see God uh, move among us. We're a church that, that welcomes his presence, obviously, based on everything that we were seeing, uh, because we believe that God is real. And we believe that, <clears throat> excuse me, that he is uh, among us, that he's Emmanuel God with us. And that's a, that is a game changer for us, isn't it? So I love when we get to experience him in kind of those different and powerful ways. Um, all right, so if you weren't here last week, last week we kicked off um, a two-part uh, teaching thing a little bit, a little, it's not a series, a mini-series, I guess, and um, we're, the, the title of the sermon is Regret-Proofing Our Lives, but really what it is that we're talking about is we're talking about the type of people that God is calling us to be and the type of church that God is calling us to be, and, and what I um, had posited to you guys last week was that um, it actually turns out that if we think about um, living a life where we could live a life without regret, and when we kind of look back at everything, um, I know that we all have some regrets, maybe some regrets that we're living with right now, but, um, but we, we want to live the type of life where we have very, very few regrets. And um, last week, what I was sharing with you guys is that uh, it turns out that the things that God is calling us to as a church... Um, will actually be the very things that will help us as individuals to live lives of purpose and to live lives with very, very few regrets. And so um, what we did last week is we unveiled our, th- our Thrive Flame. It's not that easy to say, our Thrive Flame. And um, what we've been sharing with you guys is that we are a people who are on fire for God. That's, that's the only way that we uh, have, you know, can describe ourselves. Is we are simply on fire. By the way, I see a couple of you guys taking notes, and I would strongly encourage you to write this down because um, you're going to hear about it over and over again, but I want you to actually meditate on this stuff and to really get it deeply into your heart. And so we unveiled uh, Thrive's flame. There it is, and you can see that there's a large flame in the middle with sort of four flames uh, in that thing, and then you've got coals on the bottom, and each of those flames actually illustrate or mean something to us. And so last week we talked about our first two flames, and the first one was pursuing a vibrant, intimate, daily, living, breathing relationship with Jesus, that we are going to be a people who are drawn into friendship with Jesus, and we know how to have relationship with him. We know how to experience his presence. We know how to draw from his strength and draw from his power. Um, That's the type of people that we want to be as an on-fire people. We have this vibrant connection and friendship with Jesus. And secondly, our second flame, and by the way, we're working from the center and we're moving out. The second flame is that we are a people who are being empowered, filled with power by the Holy Spirit. We're people who walk in the Spirit-filled life, and we see that in the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. We see that in the, in, in the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. And by the way, the, the gifts of the Spirit we're going to talk actually a lot about today. So those were the flames that we, uh, that we discussed last week. And if you weren't here, uh, go to YouTube and you can watch last week's sermon so you can get caught up. 
But today we're on our third flame, and uh, the, the third flame today is we are a, a church that is growing in personal wholeness. We're a church that is growing in personal wholeness, right? And so what I mean by that, you guys, is we're a church that is growing in health and maturity and Christ-likeness in our emotions and in our thoughts and in our relationships. And uh, I shared with you last week that when I think about regrets in my own life, one of the bigger regrets that I have in my own life is that I wish that I had worked on my stuff earlier in my life. And when I, when I say stuff, I mean I wish that I'd worked on my heart. I wish that I'd worked on um, sort of brokenness in my emotions, the way that, uh, the way that uh, uh, I, I interpreted things, the way that I interacted with my family when I was feeling stressed or when I was feeling undervalued or things like that. I wish that I could have tackled that stuff much earlier on than I did because Molly would have been so much happier as, as wife to Kevin, right? My kids, Molly, uh, Aiden, Cole, and Anna would have been so much uh, happier by, by just being parented by me if I had worked on my stuff earlier in my life, you know? And, and the interesting thing, you guys, is that if I were to ask just the average Christian, what does it mean to be a mature follower of Jesus? I think that most of us would say something along the lines of to be a mature follower in Jesus means to believe in Jesus. It means to try to serve God and serve the church. It means to love others. It means to evangelize the world and probably to um, be activated in the spiritual disciplines, things like prayer and uh, worship and Bible reading and that type of thing. That's probably the way that most Christians would answer that question. But the, but one of the most sort of important and slept on, quite honestly, concepts of our faith is the idea of actually having health and having maturity and having Christ-likeness in our thought life, in our heart, in our emotions, and in our relationships. And I think we all know, probably from personal experience or from seeing others, that just because you're a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that you're healthy on the inside. It doesn't mean that you have healthy relationships. And I don't see many Christians talking about this, but for us to be a fully activated on fire follower of Jesus means that we are endeavoring to be truly healthy in our inner life, truly healthy in our emotions. And Paul casts a vision for this in the book of Galatians when he says this in chapter five, verse 22. Now listen to this. You've heard this a million times. I know this, but we have to like take it almost concept by concept. Here's why I want you to integrate this. I'm going to read to you the fruit of the Spirit, but I want you to think about each of these concepts as how present is it in your heart? How present is it in your emotions, in your inner person? So Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, and it's joy, and it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control, and against such things. There is no law. And I want you to know this, you guys. Paul isn't talking about things that we do here, right? This isn't Christian activity. This isn't mar- these aren't marching orders for us. What Paul is talking about here is nothing that can be seen with the human eye, right? The fruit of the Spirit is actually about the inner working of our heart. It's about our um, the emotional part of us, which, by the way, is good, which, by the way, God created. But it turns out, I don't know if you're aware of this, it turns out that this stuff... Have you noticed that it can be elusive? That the presence of real peace in our lives can be elusive to us? That sometimes self-discipline can be hard to get? Joy sometimes can be hard to get? 
And it's not because we don't want these things. It's not because uh, we haven't tried to have them. We all have tried to have them. It's not because we don't go to church because we do go to church. It's not because we haven't engaged in reading our Bibles or praying and all that stuff. We've done all of that. But have you noticed how joy can be hard to come by sometimes? Have you noticed how peace can be hard to come by? Having enough discipline in your life, sometimes those things can be hard to come by. And I, I know you've wondered why that is. And, and why do we continue to struggle, struggle with fear? Why do we continue to struggle with anger? Why do we continue to struggle with bitterness or unforgiveness or addictive behaviors when God says, that's not who you are, and I've rescued you from all of that? Why haven't we escaped that stuff yet? And by the way, if you think that you are the only one that struggles with this stuff, what I want you to do right now is I want you to turn to the person on your left and right and say, you're a total mess. No, I don't, I, don't, I don't want you to do that. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But we are not alone, okay? We are not alone. I want to read something to you from uh, the book of Romans, and you're going to have to stick with me, okay? Like, engage your brain here uh, extra for a moment. I'm going to see if I can just get through the reading of this. So Paul wrote this in, Ephes- in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He said this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Do you ever wish that he would just use a contraction like one one time, Paul? (laughs) Right? But for most of us, you guys, we have been doing and saying and feeling what we do not want to do and say and feel probably for years and years and years. And I want to share with us that if we don't change something, if we don't work on it, if we don't engage in a different process, we will continue to have destructive thoughts and feelings and actions in our future. And the fact of the matter, church, is that emotional health and emotional maturity requires more, quite honestly, than a reading of the Bible or having someone pray over us. I wish that I could have any one of you put your hand on my head and pray that I would be emotionally mature. It it doesn't seem to work that way as as far as I can tell. And so here's what I want to say to you guys. Emotional wholeness and maturity takes a combination of humility, wisdom, courage, and dedication. And you should probably write that down. Emotional wholeness and maturity takes a combination of humility, wisdom, courage, and dedication. And so I want to say, first of all, that no one, none of us grows emotionally without humility. So my family... uh, they were laughing at me again. It hurts. They were laughing at me this time because uh, about two weeks ago, we had some yummy uh, corn on the cob uh, at dinner time. And apparently after dinner, uh, I had like a corn kernel just stuck in my beard, like right, right about here. And uh, Molly mentioned very briefly in passing, hey, you've got some food in your face. And so I wiped my face off. Try not to knock the rice crispy. I uh, wiped my face off, and then we spent the next 20 minutes cleaning, and all of our kids were there, and we're cleaning, and we're talking, and I'm kind of getting after people, hey, go do this, and we're just talking about life or whatever. And um, 15 minutes later, uh, I'm probably getting after the kids about 
getting their homework done or turning the lights off before they go to bed or whatever it is. And everybody just has this sort of weird look on their face. And I said, what? And somebody finally said, you still have that corn on the corner of your mouth. And I'm like, what? Why didn't you guys tell me? Like I've had, I've like, we, I said a million words to them over the last 15 minutes and nobody said anything about this obvious kernel of corn. And they said, we just thought it was funny. (laughs) I'm like, it's not very funny to me, right? But the point is, is that we need help when it comes to seeing and dealing with our own stuff. We can easily see the stuff in other people for some reason, but we have a very, very hard time seeing or solving our own issues. And I believe, church, that the reason why we are unable to do that very well on our own is because, quite honestly, God has called us and hardwired us for community. For fellowship, we need one another. And when it comes to diagnosing and particularly healing our own issues, we will have to listen to someone else, whether it's a spouse or a parent or a sibling or a trusted friend or a counselor or even a lowly pastor. Uh, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12, and then skipping down to 21. He's talking about how we, the church, we are one. We are a body, but with many parts, with many members, right? And so he said, For just as the body, that's you and I, just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And then 21. And so the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And so Paul is trying to teach us that we truly and actually need each other. And nowhere is this more true than in our personal wholeness and in our emotional maturity and healing. And so it takes humility to confess, I need you to help me to grow. I cannot do it alone. You guys with me on that? Secondly, we need wisdom that we often do not possess. We will need a wisdom to grow in emotional wholeness, to grow in in wholeness as a person that we don't possess. Because if the book of Proverbs is true, there is a wisdom that is available to us, yet it is wisdom that needs to be pursued. It's wisdom that needs to be sought after. And so Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7 says this, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Right? And whatever you get, get insight. If you want to be wise, then go after, seek after wisdom. And it's a wisdom that you do not currently have. It's a wisdom that is somewhere out there, but you don't have it yet. And in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22, Solomon says this, plans fail for a lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. And I want to make a kind of a bold and provocative statement to you. And it's this. Your plans for emotional healing and wholeness or maturation will fail if you fail to seek wise counsel. And I just want you to let that sink in. And and I want to say to us that this is true, not because it's in the book of Proverbs, not because it's in the Bible, but it's in the Bible and it's in the book of Proverbs because it is true. And I want you guys to know that Molly and I have been huge fans of the wisdom of others. We've been huge fans of getting other people's help. Molly and I have been through literal marriage counseling for years, and it has done so much good for us, so much good for us. I'm so thankful for it. We've been engaged in another uh, program that the Vineyard offers called Emotionally Focused, and we're going to actually launch that in the new year, and that has been instrumental in the peace and the joy that she and I are experiencing at this sort of late stage in our marriage, okay? And so I want you guys to know that, that, that we are huge fans of the wisdom of others. And I want to encourage you to pursue wisdom for yourself. Thirdly, emotional maturity and wholeness takes courage. 
You guys aware of that? Has anybody ever worked on anything that was pretty deep in your heart? It takes courage to deal with that stuff because when we get confronted with our own brokenness, that will produce an anxiety in us. And that is a, that's a difficult and sometimes a painful thing. And we will want to back off. When you start working on the deep stuff of your heart, you will want to back away from that. It's going to take courage for us to face our past. It'll take courage to deal, to square up with our brokenness, right? We're going to need courage to deal with our stuff. And I wish that I could tell you that it's just smooth sailing, but oftentimes it is not. And yet the fruit is so good. The fruit is so worth it. I was just talking to someone this week and, and this person was telling me that uh, the only reason they began to work on their stuff is because the pain on the inside got to be greater than the pain on the outside, the pain of working on it. And now they're enjoying the fruit of having worked on their stuff for a really long time. And finally, Growing in personal wholeness for us will take dedication or what the King James Bible probably calls long suffering, right? We will have to stick with our process of healing and maturation, even if it hurts over a long period of time. And Paul again writes this in Romans chapter five. He said, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I want to go back to the fruit of the Spirit for a moment. Just again, I'm, I'm praying that, that the Spirit himself will, will just let this stuff penetrate uh, our consciousness as, as like something that, we, that is available to us. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and, so, and faithfulness and self-control that is available to us but it doesn't necessarily happen overnight and it doesn't often happen without an effort. But the good news is, is that as we lean into our healing, as we pursue wisdom, as we humble ourselves and dedicate ourselves to emotional wholeness and emotional maturity, we will begin to see endurance and character and eventually hope be poured out on us and even through us. And that's what we are going after. We're going after a deep, intimate, joyful connection with God with ourselves and with other people. This is what it means to be truly an on-fire, mature Christian. And I'll finish with this. Uh, Solomon said in, in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, he said, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the whole course of your life. And I would just sort of add to that, that we don't just guard it, we nurture it, we care for it, we work on our hearts, because out of our heart flows your whole life. Everything goes from there. Okay, we're on to our fourth flame. You guys still okay? All right, here we go. Flame number four. We are on mission. We are a people who are reaching the lost and transforming the poor. And I hope that you write this down. I want all of these uh, somewhere that you can reference them. So we are living for a bigger purpose than ourselves. We are, uh, we are trying to build believers who are on mission with God to reach the lost and to care for and transform the poor. Now, I don't know if you guys have heard about this. I'm sure most of you have. But 25 years ago, in 1996, there was a mandate that was sent down from the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, it was also co-signed by the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, the Pope, and even the Archbishop of Canterbury, that every Christian in the Western world was required to wear a WWJD bracelet somewhere on their body to show that they were in fact a Christian, right? If you didn't have a what would Jesus do bracelet or a necklace somewhere on you, people could check you and revoke your get into heaven free card, right? 
That might be a slight exaggeration. I've been prone to exaggeration, Molly tells me. And I know that that, that era has kind of had its day, right? I get that. But as we think about our fourth flame, as we think about our mission's flame, I want you to ask this question of yourself, and it's this. If Jesus had this life of mine, if Jesus lived in my skin, what would Jesus do? If Jesus fully inhabited you, what would he do? And church, I believe that at the very top of the list, what Jesus would do with my life is I believe that he would use my life to seek and save the lost and to restore the poor. I believe that that's how he would use Kevin. Would you amen that or is it, do, would you, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking for some sort of agreement here, right? But if we have a regret, if we think about regrets, I think that not participating in God's most meaningful work of leading a person across that threshold into eternal life and not being used by God to minister the surprising love of God where it's needed most to the poor, I believe that we will deeply regret it if we miss those mandates in our lives. And the reason why I think that we're gonna, that we might regret it is because one of the greatest joys I believe that any Christian could experience must be being the person that gets to be a key part of that process or the one that gets to lead a person into eternal life, into an entirely changed future. Um, I have told you guys many, many times that there's a guy uh, that exists in the world. He exists in Philadelphia. His name is Scott Light, and he's the guy that led me to Christ. Okay, so Scott led me to Christ when I was in the army, and, and look at me now. Now, I am Reverend Kevin Kiefer, pastor of this church, quite literally, right? And I've told Scott, Scott, if you don't do anything else in your life, if you literally do nothing but sit on your couch and eat potato chips and watch Cleveland Indians baseball, because he's a Cleveland guy, and suck up space and order Grubhub, if you do nothing more than that, I want you to know, Scott, that your life meant something, that your life was incredibly instrumental. Like if he did nothing else, he changed my life forever and ever. And now look, I have this world-changing wife, and she's world-changing not just because she has a dynamic personality, but because she has dedicated her life to Jesus. I have kids who are traveling the world to share the gospel this year. I have a church that is going after everything that God has given them, and it's all because I spent 18 or 19 months with Scott Light in Colorado a long time ago, and by leading me to Christ when we were 19 years old, Scott has affected the lives of hundreds and hundreds of people and even generations of people. And I, I wonder... If you can just imagine the joy that that must give him. And, and, and you know what I'm thinking too is that his joy is just this compared to what he will experience when he gets to heaven and he gets to see the fruit of his life. And I believe, you guys, that we all want to have a story like that. I believe that we all have the ability and the calling to be able to be a part of that type of a thing where someone's life is radically changed. And then there's this incredible ripple effect. And I love Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. It's so beautiful. It says this, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. I want to read that one more time. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. And I know that there are a lot of valid ways of measuring significance in life, and most of those revolve around uh, uh, helping or strengthening other people, right? Some people leave legacies behind because they've left lots of money behind them, and they send their, their, their fortunes to places of need to further education or something like that. 
Some people leave legacies of being amazing family people, right? They were loving and faithful mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers. Some people uh, leave legacies of, of being significant because they gave their life to social programs or to education or human rights or something like that. Some people's legacy, quite honestly, I've seen this, is that they were just characters, right? They were, they were funny. They were beloved by people. And all of those contributions are beautiful, and they're all valid, and all of them enhance the lives of people, sometimes many people. But of all the important things that we can do, I personally have a hard time coming up with a more important, more impactful thing that we could ever do than lead a person to faith in Jesus. Because that single act of taking a person by the hand and introducing them to Jesus and escorting them across the threshold of faith, that is truly the one thing that we will ever do that is eternal in its, in its spiritual effect and is generational in its earthly effect because we pass our faith down to our generations. And I just want to say, if you have ever been a part of leading someone to Christ, do you know what you've done? Do you know what you've done? I don't think you, you do now. I don't think we will know until we meet God in heaven. And I want all of us to have the satisfaction and the joy of being that person in some people's lives. There is nothing like it, church. We get to lead people out of eternal death into abundant eternal life. What a joy. And the second part of our mission's flame is restoring the poor. It's being a person that's on fire and carries the same heart of Jesus. And Jesus wrote that, or he didn't write it, uh, but he said it. And it's recorded in Luke chapter 12. He, and Jesus said this, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure uh, in the heavens that, will, that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. I, um, I was dealing with my dad. My dad, uh, he had... Uh, he had this, this little piece of, uh, of his investments that he had forgotten about for years and years and years and years and years. And it got so locked up. Uh, it was some stocks that he actually had paper stocks and it had gotten so locked up in the system that he actually wasn't able to access a, a large portion of it. And what Jesus, you guys, is saying is that there is an investment in this world that nothing can touch, that will produce fruit, that will make a difference, and it is giving to the needy. The Apostle John, uh, Jesus' disciple, carried the same heart. He said this in 1 John chapter 3. He said, but if anyone has the world's goods, which, by the way, every person that I'm talking to, you do have them, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? But when God's love does abide in us, our hearts will be inclined towards the poor. And I want to give you one more little piece of scripture that is so key because it's been misunderstood, I think, by virtually everyone for such a long time. So just before Jesus was uh, arrested, uh, he, was, he was having a dinner with some people and he was sort of reclining. The way that they had dinners, they would kind of like lean back on their elbow. And as he was eating, a woman came in. Uh, really, really overwhelmed with love for Jesus. And she came with this jar of incredibly expensive oil, this fragrant, beautiful oil, and it was valuable, it was highly valuable. And she went in to worship Jesus and to minister to Jesus right in the middle of this dinner. And she poured this oil over Jesus' head and she began to weep and to wash his feet with her hair. And it says that the, the disciples were ticked off about it. They were frustrated. It says they were indignant about it. And the reason they were so upset about this extravagant act of worship is they said, you shouldn't have let her do that, Jesus, because the money that we could have gotten from that oil would have, been, would have gone a long way to care for the poor, right? Do you guys remember the story? And then Jesus said to them, 
Leave her alone. Right? Leave her alone. Leave her be. And then this is what he said, and this is important. He says this, leave her alone, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me, right? And most of us have probably spent our lives making that to mean there is nothing that you can do about the poor. They're always going to be there, so don't worry too much about it. And in fact, the lesson is absolutely the opposite. The opposite is true. Jesus was talking to his disciples who had been with him day in, day out, doing life and doing ministry for years and years and years, right? And what were they doing? Most of their ministry was ministry to the poor. I don't know if you guys are aware of that. Most of his ministry with his disciples was caring for the poor. And so when Jesus told his disciples, you will always have the poor with you, what he was saying is, is as I've taught you to follow me, as I've taught you to live the Christian life, as I've taught you what true religion is, I know where you will be. You will be with the poor because to serve me is to serve the poor. You will always have the poor with you because I'm calling you to transform the poor. It is that simple. And I want to say that there are no true Christians who do not do the work of transforming the poor of and caring for the poor because it is central to the heart of God. Because Jesus said, pray that my kingdom would come and my will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there is no poverty in the kingdom of God. There is no impoverishment. There is no lack. And so our work is to reverse that curse. And so we pray Let your kingdom come. And then we say, make me an instrument of that. Use me for that work. Amen? Okay, so let's wrap up our flames. Our flames are these, and I hope you'll memorize these. We pursue vibrant, intimate, daily connection with Jesus, friendship with Jesus. We are being empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are growing in personal wholeness, health, maturity, Christ-likeness in our thoughts, our emotions, and in our relationships, right? And finally, our mission's flame. We are engaging in God's mission of reaching the lost and restoring the poor, which finally brings us to our coals. What are these coals doing? Well, the coals are this. The coals represent being committed to community, being committed and connected to one another. We are a church family, and we believe that no one grows alone. Nobody grows alone. And if I have a regret, uh, or we might have a regret, it will be missing uh, on the blessing of living in what, uh, what some people have called the good and beautiful community, which is the church. And I believe that, that, um, that you know, we will all someday regret not pouring ourselves deeply into this. And one of the reasons is, is simply this. God's greatest tool for ministering to you very likely will be the people that you're sitting next to. The instruments of God's peace, the instruments of his mercy, the instruments of his, the way that he pours himself out in prayer and everything else is usually through one another. That's why there are so many one another's in the scripture, right? God's tool for ministering to the church is the church. That means that God's tool for ministering to you is the people that are around you. And so we are an army together that that reaches the world and brings God's kingdom out here. And we are nurses and doctors to care for one another. And so these coals, they represent us. Can you do the picture again for me? The coals represent us, right? Each one of us is a coal. And, and what do coals do? What do they do? Yeah, start a fire. They're, they're the fuel for fire, right? And you know what happens when a bunch of coals get together? You stack up a bunch of coals and you set them on fire and they burn hot, and they burn bright, and they burn long, and they provide warmth, and they are good for cooking, and all kinds of things. But what if you took a tongs, and you were to take one of those coals out, and set it aside, and just put it on the outside of the fire, what would happen? Well, two things would happen. The first thing that would happen is that that coal would go out, 
rather quickly. It would grow cold and it would stop functioning the way that it was meant to function. And the other thing that would happen that we don't think about very often is that if we remove that coal from the fire, that fire will not burn as brightly. If we remove that coal from that fire, that fire will be missing something. It won't be able to be or do all that it was meant to be. That lack of a coal impacts the fire. And obviously, this is a perfect picture for us, church. You and I are without doubt called to not just God, but we're called to one another, to friendship, to intimate connection, called to be what the Bible calls the church. And the fact of the matter is, is that you can't do without the church, and the church cannot do without you. That's just the way that God has set it up. And I have seen this in real life over and over and over again when Christians, even mature Christians, get isolated. When they stop coming, I see how their their relationship with God begins to erode. It is not easy. As a matter of fact, it may be impossible to do a deep, vibrant, on-fire connection with God without the help of the church. And I, I know that there's an exception to every rule, but in my experience, this is almost 100%. We do not thrive when we are alone. We do not thrive when the coal of our lives is taken off and put aside. And I have been a a pastor, you guys, for 20 years, and I've seen this over and over again. And I want you to know, though, that I know that getting yourself into community, doing community, is very hard. I know that it's pushing against the grain in almost every way. Molly and I have been uh, going to church with children for now 20 years. And I know how hard it is to get three kids to church. I don't know how hard it is to get nine kids to church, but I know how hard it is to get three kids to church. And when I talk to my kids, they tell me that one of the hardest things about being pastor's kids was that they got dragged everywhere and it stressed them out and it stressed us out, right? And that's just the beginning because it doesn't get any better when you show up. Because when you show up to community, when you show up to to church, what are there? People. And we're tough, right? People are tough. I, I realized it would be so much easier if, like, we could just have man's best friend at church. Like, just bring Fido. The whole church is dogs and us, right? They're loyal. They just love to lick us. It's a great. Or we could have, like, little kitties. And Carly would like that. Kittens that just want to, like, sit on your lap. Church would be way better if we just had kittens and dogs at church. Instead, we find people. And there's different personalities. And there's different politics. And, and maybe people don't have, like, great social skills. There's all kinds of stuff. And uh, or maybe you don't have a great social skill. I don't know. But but we are challenging to each other. Doing community is hard work, but community actually is how God has chosen to bring his kingdom and how God's chosen to save the world. And it is the key instrument for character development in us, right? Our character does not grow when we are alone at home. It doesn't. Our character does not develop when we grow or when we are at home alone. We need each other for this. And the world won't experience his kingdom in a powerful way if we are all separated at these little coals staying at home. Do you guys realize that? We will not make the impact in the world that we were created to. And I do have this sadness and this regret for those of our family at Thrive that have been on the, on the sidelines for so long. For those of us that have stayed at home for so long. And I, I know that, that we've gone through COVID. But I want you guys to know that we cannot put all of the blame for our isolation on COVID. We can't do it. We choose how we will live. We choose whether or not we will engage in community, engage in the church, or not. And I've seen too many of us suffer because we've lacked this connection uh, with with God. Uh, And so Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 say this, and you've probably heard this before. 
It says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And if, if, if going deep into to fellowship, if going deep into community is something that we may regret later on, then I want to encourage you to make a renewed commitment to showing up as often as you can. Because to be honest with you guys, uh, I know that I'm preaching to the choir because you're all sitting right here, but I also want you to know that 30 years ago, average church attendance was about three point something per month. And today, among on-fire believers, mature believers, average church attendance is closer to two point something. In other words, we just don't show up as often as we used to. And I want to be a church where we show up for each other. We don't just come to receive, but we come to give. Because if your coal is missing, one of us is going to, we're going to hurt because of it. We're going to be colder because of it. Does that make sense? So this fall, we're launching um, Thrive groups. We're launching, we're just going to like proliferate uh, small gatherings. And, uh, and we're really excited because we're starting this, this new small uh, gathering experience called Rooted. It's a curriculum that we have piloted this summer. And we are discovering that this thing is very, very, very powerful at growing and sinking roots into God. It will stoke your relationship with God and it will bind you to one another. I hope that each of you guys get into one of these Rooted groups because you will grow in deeper friendship and connection with each other and you're going to go much further in the Lord, okay? And so you guys, you're a coal. If I, if I had thought about it, I would have gotten a big bag of, uh, you know, charcoal briquettes and we would all gotten dirty. I would have handed every one of you guys one of those things, right? But I want us to be this burning on fire flame here at Thrive where we support one another and we burn bright for each other. And so the invitation for us, you guys, is simply this. I want you to choose what kind of a follower of Jesus you want to be. I want you to choose today to be a truly full-orbed, whole on fire Christian, an on fire thriver, right? Like why live with regret any longer? Why, why increase regret as we walk into the future? It's better for us to live with intention. It's better for us to live with purpose, on purpose, to fix our eyes on the prize. And so I'm going to read a scripture to, to, to wrap us up, but here, here's how I would, I would integrate this. So we have, uh, we have five things. We have four flames and we have these coals. And what I would like you to do is just in your connection with God, the next time you meet with God, which is hopefully sometime within the next 36 hours, I hope that you will look at each one of these things. And I want you to sort of ask yourself and ask God, where am I really high functioning? Where are all the pistons firing in, in these areas, in these categories? Just like, you know, find out where God is at work, right? And give God glory for that and pat yourself on the back for that. But then I want you to also ask yourself, where am I not fully functioning? Where am I sort of lacking? Where do I need to like, you know, sort of give some attention to? Where do I need to invite God to minister to me and to to cast vision for me in this area? Does that make sense as an assignment? Okay, let's conclude with this. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two say this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a, a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. I'm going to read it one more time. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the author, and the perfecter of our faith. We will never regret it if we do. Amen?